My guest today is a stalwart of sport and entertainment, a cum laude graduate of the Notre Dame Law School. His entry point into the industry was through sports law before going on to set up a talent management agency in the 90s, responsible for representing the commercial interests of several top American athletes. He soon made the jump into music, first at Warner Group and then Sony, where he led the gospel divisions. But it wasn't long before he was back in sport, joining the eminent NASCAR franchise Dale Earnhardt Incorporated as president of Global Operations. Since then, he has become best known for his role as CEO at US Track and Field, leading the governing body's sometimes bumpy road to recovery and turning it into a commercial powerhouse. Besides all that, he found the time to establish his own sports marketing agency, create a minority NASCAR development team, write a book, and sit on the board of RISE, a nonprofit aiming to use sport as a platform to end racial discrimination. A negotiator, a deal maker, and a force for positive change. He's someone who's seen it all. It's my great pleasure to welcome Max Siegel onto the podcast. Max, you're very welcome. So good to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Well, Max, actually, I think one or two podcasts ago, it was uh, the turn of Bubba Wallace to sit in the hot seat. Uh, and that's a sport close to your heart. But I know uh, just to bring it absolutely up to speed, I saw Bubba were up compete in a in an exhibition event at uh, the Coliseum, 1984 Olympic Games, a little bit close to my heart. Uh, and really, it was uh, I thought it was an, a fantastic event, which I, I guess is there to try and reach out to uh, to those fans, although that bedrock that may not be that familiar with NASCAR. Yeah, it's a great event. Um, they have taken a huge risk. Uh, expanded the fan base. I think of the 50,000 people that went to the race, 65% of them, it was the first time ever being in a NASCAR race. So watching the innovation in the sport, watching the effort to reach a more diverse audience uh, and a younger pop dem- pop culture demographic has been really cool to see. Well, look, man, uh, a lot more about that later and all the other stuff that you've sort of gone on to do. But look, it's my podcast, so I'm, I think I'm allowed to sort of kick off in, in, in my own quirky way. I'm always fascinated on that hinterland that doesn't always appear on a CV, and your CV is, is lustrous. Uh, and I guess the thing that's always interested me is the formative years of my guests. Uh, and I guess what those influences are. And I'm, I'm a great believer that, look, we're all, a, we're all hewn from the same rock in a way it's family it's friends it's education it's geography it's it's landscape um and and i guess in everything that i see that you've achieved it's difficult to pin you down on any one of those because it looks to me like it's a sort of a suffusion an amalgam of all those things that have taken you to where you are today tell me a little bit about the early years before we get into the the you know the 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 minutiae of detail around what you actually have achieved. Yeah, so so my passion uh, came out of a an environment of chaos. Um, I was raised in a household where my parents did not go to college. My parents were divorced. Uh, tons of dysfunction in my upbringing, and for me, uh, sports and entertainment uh, was an escape, and it was. A, a way for me to focus my attention on things other than being at home. My mother was a singer. 
my father was a music executive and they divorced and I didn't see my mother for seven years. And so moving around the country, uh, meeting a bunch of different people, not even knowing if my mother was alive for seven years, I think the thing that grounded me was, you know, the family that I developed around sports. And so um, it was an escape, really. And frankly, it was where I found a lot of my self-confidence. It's, it's where I found that it was a huge platform to affect the lives of many people. So um, I, I attribute a lot of my uh, focus and professional success to those formative years with coaches that invested in me. Let me just digress for a moment. You know, you talk about a landscape of chaos in, in your formative years. Do you think that particularly maybe in your role with in uh, U.S. track and field, uh, look, we all we all come from different backgrounds. We all have, you know, all the athletes have peculiar and difficult and different challenges. Do you think that world of chaos has helped you relate more closely to the day-to-day -day challenges that athletes have alongside their messianic belief in, in their own talent and the need to achieve? Yeah, for me, I, I've craved stability uh, growing up, and I wanted to be, you know, a grounding factor, I think, for me to navigate the complexity of USA track and field, staying focused on why I get up and come to work every day, what our mission is all about, you know, what the athletes are trying to achieve professionally, and how I can support them kind of keeps me focused on what it is that I'm here to do professionally. And so, frankly, I do believe that, you know, being exposed to so many different people growing up, so many different environments, uh, and at the same time, I had a younger sister that I wanted to create a stable environment for, you know, I bring those same principles and my values to my work every day. So I understand the journey that the athlete has, which is sometimes lonely. Uh, I understand the fact that there are a number of people present in their life. And I understand that it, there, there's a lack of consistency often. So for me, uh, it really has helped me focus on, you know, what it is that I can do to support that journey. I'm interested, Max, do you also feel it's your responsibility to maybe intervene and, and wade into that landscape if you see, you know, great talent that just is being dissipated because you don't have, as you've said, that solidity, that, that consistency? Yeah, where, 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 where are the, where's, where's the demarcation here for somebody in your position in a sport? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because where I am at this stage in my career, I look at the athletes. Uh, you know, I have my children are as old, if not older, than many of our athletes. You know, and so for me, I take a really holistic view of their development. It is about you know, the peak athletic performance, but at the same time, what are they doing to make the community a better place? How are they growing as individuals? What life lessons, uh, the teams that are around them? And I do believe, you know, what I've tried to do since I've been here is not only amplify the athlete voice, but l raise the level of accountability with all of those professionals that surround our athletes. So I'm incredibly careful to respect the boundaries of uh, the professional teams that the athletes assemble. But as the leader of the organization, I do feel a sense of responsibility to make sure that we're there. And it doesn't matter. I mean, it could be mental health. It could be financial. It could be career planning. You know, I've made it a, a priority of mine to really try to get to know these athletes and understand what it is long-term that they want to achieve beyond their athletic career. Look, the, the, 
there's no reason why you should know this, but I am actually a big music fan, but in a very specific area, Max, I'm, I'm what they would describe in the UK as a moldy wharf. I'm a, an old jazz man. Um, 1940s, you know, the small bands of Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, that's my, that's my forte. I'm always fascinated by people who have been on the inside uh, in that industry. Uh, and look, I have a modest role. I'm actually president of the, the uh, National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And our challenge is not to identify talent because the talent's already there. And we're certainly not out them out there to teach them to be jazz musicians because there are things going on in... It's a wondrous world to me. There are things going on in the heads of those 18-year-old kids that I just find mind-blowing in terms of, you know, cadences and, and, and innovation. But we also are really focused on trying to let them understand the world they're entering in. So we book them crazy gigs and make sure that at midnight somewhere remote, they then have to travel back for six hours on a coach. We give them a booking the following lunchtime just to get them into that world. I'm guessing the world you were in, you've probably seen an awful lot of talent, rather like the athletics world where the discipline wasn't there. Did you see that as your role when you were doing your stint in with Sony and then uh, uh, well, Warner and then Sony, it, it, particularly in the gospel area? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The common theme uh, throughout my career with this platform is to see how art and sports contribute to the fabric of culture, right? And so for me, you know, I grew up, my mother was a singer. So watching her uh, develop her career, my father worked for the company to sign the Beatles to their deal in America, VJ Records. So I really got to see, you know, different sides of that industry, creatively, artistically, you know, what goes into the craft and at the same time, building a star, shaping them, you know, reaching a consumer. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's actually pretty fascinating to see how gifted a lot of the musicians and entertainers are and the contributions that they make to society and at the same time really struggling at times to earn uh, a, a, you know, a career or, uh, you know, a great quality of life doing it. And, and so for me, you know, being on the music business and especially in the gospel side, it was interesting to balance, you know, the integrity of someone's ministry with the commercial aspect of their career. Yeah. Having them understand that there is a business to art, uh, which creates, you know, this opportunity for them to, to, to earn a living. So, yeah, it's, it's really, it, it was a fascinating industry and I'm just, I continue to marvel at the talent. And my own son, my younger son is a recording artist out in LA. So I get to relive uh, that through him as a parent, which I can tell you is a whole different experience than being an executive in the business. Well, I'm interested. What are the traits that you look for in a potential star? For me, um, authenticity, uh, the ability to have an emotional connection through performance and art uh, with the audience, the discipline and the passion uh, to be innovative. But it is so incredibly uh, fascinating to see creatives access a part of their brain that if my life depended on it, I couldn't. Uh, and yeah. so for me, you know, in addition to having that raw talent, you know, as a talent, someone who discovers and identifies talent, you look for something that just kind of sets them apart and that little star power. 
but at the core, you know, really, really having a passion and a commitment uh, to their art and being the best that they could possibly be. And the highlights in that part of your life? Yeah, you know, I, I got to work for the famous Clive Davis. Uh, I got to work with fascinating artists like Britney Spears and Beyonce, uh, Usher. It runs the entire gamut. The Sony, I B think I've heard of them. <laughs> the, the, the Sony BMG Entertainment family uh, was fascinating. I think one of the things, there were two things that kind of shaped even my approach to my job today from both entertainment and NASCAR. And one was I was in the entertainment business as technology changed uh, the, the business dynamics. So as we got away from physical CDs and we started getting into streaming and those kind of things, we had to figure out how to keep up with how consumers were listening and buying music or not, you know, and the same thing uh, with NASCAR. But for me, the highlight was really, you know, working for Charles Goldstock or Clive Davis and being able to work alongside and with these amazing artists uh, as they develop their projects. Max, in 2007, you made the jump into sport. You joined leading NASCAR franchise, Dale Earnhardt, incorporated as president of his global operations. But it was a role that made you the highest ranked African-American executive in NASCAR. An incredible achievement, obviously, but it must have felt on some occasions a bit of a lonely place. There weren't too many of you guys in the village. Yeah, so, so I represented uh, the late Reggie White, Hall of Fame football player, who was always uh, trying to figure out how to use his platform to just just make the world a better yeah. place. So he retired in Charlotte, North Carolina, was friendly with Joe Gibbs, called me and said, hey, Max, um, there are so many opportunities for women and people of color in this fascinating sport. And I said, listen, my father was Jewish and I'm a black guy, and there is no opportunity, in my opinion, for women and people of color. You and Sammy NASCAR. Davis Jr. <laughs> exactly, the two of us. Uh, and so, uh, I, I, you know, he proved me wrong. The fact of the matter was that I went down there and fell in love with the sport, met Teresa Earnhardt, was invited down to Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, but one of my mentors, uh, Tony Dungy, the coach, uh, I basically called him up and I said, listen, this is, I would be the first African-American president. I don't think they ever had a person of color work for the company. And he said to me, it's rare that you have an opportunity to impact an organization and industry and culture. And so he felt that I had an obligation to go down there and, and make it a different place. And it, it was life changing for me and probably one of the most um, important decisions that I made in my professional career. And I'm, I'm fascinated because did that, I mean, did that impact on your approach to the job or were you sort of oblivious to that? You just wanted to create a, a difference or was that always, was that a driving force or was it something that you just professionally approach? Well, you, you know, I've been fascinated my entire career to expand my skill set or yeah. to be in a, a new, a different environment. What was fascinating to me is Teresa Earnhardt was the only female owner of a NASCAR Sprint Cup franchise after Dale yep. Sr. died. And she was fascinated with content creation, entertainment, and licensing. So we connected professionally, but I quickly found that everyone in the organization revered the brand. They were passionate about the organization. Uh, they loved the sport. And what we wound up doing was connecting on, you know, this common pursuit of excellence and innovation. And so... 
bringing new ideas to the organization, seeing some commercial success, it allowed me the the it it gave me the permission to have these more deep discussions about differences and culture and what we had in common. And so it wasn't something that I consciously pursued, but it was a tremendous opportunity to really kind of change the minds and the perspective of people who had never interacted with others that were different than them. As I mentioned, well, just a few minutes ago, I had Bubba on the podcast and I actually asked him a similar question. And I sensed that for Bubba, there was just a, a vague frustration um, that he was constantly defined by his uh, African-American roots. Have you found the same emotion there, or has it been something that you just accepted as was probably part of the landscape? Well, you know, um, I think that when I took on that responsibility, I was a little bit much older than Bubba was when he was thrust into the responsibility of carrying that mantle. I'm incredibly proud of my heritage and who I am. I think that uh, as the world has become more global and we've become more connected even through technology, uh, we've gained an appreciation for uh, differences that we all have. So for me, I just stay committed to excellence, try to focus on the quality of my work, understand that that's a part of the journey. Uh, But my responsibility in doing so is to shine a light on others like me who the masses may not have been exposed to, to really get out there and tell the story, yes, I am African-American, uh, a black executive, but there are many talented people just like me out there that deserve an opportunity and a chance uh, to excel. So so I don't mind it at all. I'm incredibly comfortable with it, and I see it uh, as an opportunity to educate and change the hearts and minds of people. And. And and in the midst of all this, you still find time to create a marketing company. Uh, and it was under that umbrella that uh, you net one, you own the NASCAR development team, Rev Racing, which I understand was the vehicle, effectively the vehicle that you've used uh, to drive the NASCAR, uh, well, it is, it's the, to the drive for, for diversity uh, and all the other challenges that go with that. Tell me a little bit about that because... Uh, but Bubba mentioned that as well as being one of the vehicles that allowed him the or gave him permission to feel part of the NASCAR landscape. Yeah, so so probably three of the brightest stars right now, Daniel Suarez, Kyle Larson, Bubba Wallace, all drove for me in the development series. Uh, most of them who had invested in their career were at a place financially and just from an access standpoint that they couldn't continue on uh, without this team and the program. What I recognized early on in my investment in NASCAR was the only way to guarantee that young people who historically didn't have access to these opportunities would was for me to be an owner. So I bought two small teams 15 years ago. I launched Rev Racing, and we developed minority and women pit crew members and drivers. Uh, we've enjoyed success. We won a, you know the Canaan Pro Series championship with uh, Kyle Larson. We won the ARCA championship last year first African-American female tire change in a sport. We've placed over 60 graduates in the pit crew area throughout the sport. And so for me, I so take is it a, front, front and back of office. Yes. Front and back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It, 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 and you know, and, and for me, it's, it's a tremendous source of uh, pride uh, to see where the sport is right now and the momentum that we have 
in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So um, it's been, this is my 15th year. And, and, you know, every year we have a great group of young people that come through there. You know, whether you're an engineer, you're in marketing, you're a lawyer, you're a driver, you're a crew member. And to see how inspired these young people are and the difference that they're making in the sport, uh, I can't say enough about my partnership with NASCAR, my entire organization, and uh, the leaders that run uh, Rev Racing on a daily basis. And you'll have drivers competing at national level this year. Absolutely. So Nick Sanchez uh, will be competing in the Craftsman Truck Series with Chevrolet as our manufacturer and Gamebridge as our primary sponsor. Very proud that Raja Karuth is going to race for GMS uh, Racing right now uh, in the Truck Series as well. So yes, we have two our young graduates from last year. Uh, Nick is continuing on with me and Raja's placed at another team. So it's it's getting on for 10 years, Max, since you actually saw the light and came to the mother of all sports, uh, the most important Olympic sport, the number one Olympic sport. So let's, let, I'd just like to unpack a little bit of this because obviously it's, it's close to my heart. Uh, and look, in simple terms, you, it, look, you've been credited as, as really turning around the fortunes. Uh, of the organization. Before we get into that, though, I just wanted to continue with this theme of diversity, because for me, as you know, it, it's it's also a passion, particularly in an organization that has, you know, I, I think we all pride ourselves in athletics. There's no more diverse or um, certainly accessible sport. Uh, and so 15 years on from walking through the doors at, at Dale Earnhardt, um, there's still very sadly remain very, very few African-Americans in, in a, an administrative role in sport. Look, track and field, I think we're all pretty comfortable about saying leads the, the way. It's the most diverse national governing body uh, in the Olympic movement. It's certainly the most diverse national governing body in the US. Uh, and, on the, and yet on the flip side of that, you've got the NFL, perhaps the most striking example where 70% of the players are black, and yet probably representation both in the boardroom, at general management, head coach positions dips below 10%. Do you have any insights into why um, that is the case? And look, I know we, you will have started on the right side of, of the instincts in, in track and field, but clearly you felt that it was important to build on that in the sport yeah well first of all the administrative side of our governing body was not diverse i think uh there were two african-american males and three women uh we were intentional and deliberate uh right now 56 percent of the c-suite executives at usa track and field are women 44 percent minority uh that came about through a really intentional focus on changing the culture of the organization and so for me, I uh, think- Max, oh, how did you go about that? Well, you know, we instituted a few things. I think that what tends to happen when people hire, uh, they hire within their comfort zone. So people that they are familiar with in their network, people that, you know, they may be aligned with from a vision standpoint. So we disrupted that. We started off from everything from our recruitment and our resume review process. We have everyone in the organization, regardless of level, we put together a team that they are involved in the process. So you could be a coordinator or a receptionist 
or achieve, no matter what it is. Uh, you're encouraged to recommend uh, folks that you know uh, and are aware of. We have a team approach to interviewing. So once we screen our candidates to make sure that they have, you know, the skill set professionally, then we bring them into the organization and see whether or not they fit into the team. And diversity for me is diversity of life experience. So my chief of sport performance here is about to be 79 years old, recently retired. Uh, Duffy Mahoney and Chelsea Schmank, who manages the brand, is 30 years old. And so for me, it is incredible to sit down in a room. You come and up I know with them both. <laughs> you come up with solutions uh, to problems. You're able to be more innovative. Uh, it's a you know very healthy and robust discussion about any topic, whether it's you know to the integrity of the competition to branding. And so for me, it is really intentional and it is woven into the DNA of who we are. And quite frankly and sadly, USA Track and Field is the only governing body in the U.S. Olympic movement with an African-American CEO and COO. And so we are spending a lot of our time on the best practice side, you know, talking about filling the pipeline with future talent, identifying people in other industries with transferable skills and recruiting them to come and share that knowledge and experience uh, with our sport. So, you know, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of effort and focus. And um, and so we are encouraging and part of my role, you know, on the board of Rise is to not only use that organization's platform for race relations, but to introduce best practices across the landscape of sport uh, in our country. What are, do you have uh, other sports organizations, leagues, groups coming to you as a sport to understand what those challenges were and how you went about shifting the dial? Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of the dialogue started to open up organizationally during COVID. Uh, we had a COVID working group with sports uh, across the country, the NFL, Major League Baseball, you know, who worked together through those conversations and learning a lot about the organization. The interesting thing for me is we have a very complex organization. Uh, USA Chagafield is global in nature. The commercial aspect is complex and a lot of people don't realize it. And so when they see our athletes in the Olympic Games and they learn about the organization, I've had folks in the NFL, Major League Baseball, uh, you know, Major League Soccer, all of my colleagues in the networks, uh, come to me and ask us how we were able to achieve diversity. And so it has really been an organic way to sit down with those influencers in other country, other companies and share, you know, uh, our approach, our philosophy, our strategy, and how we actually execute on those things. And that has been one of the more rewarding things about, you know, uh, my role here over the last decade plus. And look, it, it's pretty, <clears throat> it's pretty apparent that, you know, when I look at your career, you made a pretty instant impact on NASCAR in terms of the uh, commercial uh, impact, certainly in uh, U.S. track and field. Uh, and while this clearly involved changes throughout the organization to make them more marketable, um, there is, look, there's a lot of deal making. In fact, you've written a book on, on deal making. There have been a few of those books out there, Max by a few people that we probably won't refer to about deal-making, but yours was, yours I've actually looked at, and I find it interesting because the element of the human condition 
and all the things that you've talked about in the art of that deal uh, and certainly being able to present your sport as one that is amenable and open to diversity and actually thrives on it. You, I'm hoping you're going to tell me, uh, and this is one of those lessons for other sports, that it is a huge commercial asset to go to the, ta- go to the marketing table with a diverse organization. Absolutely. Um, The human element is critical. The fact of the matter is, for me, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that when we go into commercial partnerships, we make sure that there is alignment. There's alignment, you know, on the corporate level. But even more importantly, I learned early on that you don't achieve anything significant without collaboration. And the minute that you understand that not only should your corporate objectives align, but there's a person on the other side of that deal that's taking a risk that's advising their staff that they're investing in a project or uh, in an initiative, and you really understand what it takes to make them successful, I, I have found that people are more inclined to reciprocate and invest in what it is that you're trying to achieve as well. So while you know the objective clear is clear for me when I go into a discussion, I don't lead with what is in it for me. I really try to figure out what's in it for both of us. And I think the only way to sustain, you know, long-term success and to have a relationship that lasts through the test of time is as mutually beneficial. And, and, and frankly, we got to see that during COVID. We did not have one sponsor that reduced us or left the organization through COVID. And most of them even understood that their investment, we had athletes on Zoom calls that would personally thank our sponsors for their ability to pay their rent and train during COVID. And I think that it resonated with a lot of our sponsors where they understood it wasn't just a transaction, but the fact of the matter was their investment had an impact on the lives of our organization, our staff, our athletes, and the like. Well, well, your book was aptly named uh, Know What Makes Them Tick. Is that the art of the negotiation? Uh, I, I, I believe it's at the heart of it. Uh, you know, and depending on who you're negotiating with and what you're negotiating for, uh, you can set your strategy that's both, you know, some of the science and some of the art. But the reality of, of the situation is at the end of the day, I think it truly is understanding with the person that you want to do business with, what success looks like for them and how you can contribute to that success, you know, consistent with the mission of your own organization. Do you think it's also important for those brands that do come into your organization to be able to see that that money is actually being wisely invested and in a way they're also investing in that community then the old-fashioned concept of names you know eyeballs on a t-shirt with a brand or a logo is in my view is if it ever worked was a pretty old-fashioned nostrum but i guess those businesses that do come to the table want to see their their own brand equity grow alongside you yeah so so, so there are a few things people like uh, a well-run organization they like management stability they like the fact that your goals are clear that you're a good steward of the resources uh, that and that you can demonstrate value in a number of ways like uh, what you just mentioned traditionally giving them the metrics on you know what type of value whether it's you know, consumer engagement or media value. However, I'll give you an, another example. Uh, leading up to the World Championships in Oregon, our outdoor championships, Toyota invested in the Athlete Lounge. And so most of their programs were consumer-facing before that. 
And the athletes had the ability to say, hey, I was more relaxed. I got to eat. You fueled me. This was yeah. a tremendous experience. And so they increased their investment and changed their strategy uh, because they saw what we were investing in both the athlete experience. So to your point, I do think that, you know, at the at the most basic level, you have to demonstrate the value on the commercial side. But even more importantly, you really have to demonstrate how this investment is changing the organization and having the impact uh, beyond that traditional metric. Well, let, let's focus, if I may, on one of those deals, because it was the deal at U.S. Uh, track and field that really got the, the market talking. Uh, and in simple terms, it was a deal you signed with Nike. I think it was 23, 24 years, uh, often quoted, but we never, you know, I know the confidentiality of those kind of negotiations, but thought to be in and around the 500 million mark. Um, it created longevity. It created stability. Uh, you've been able to invest wisely off the back of that, but it wasn't without its its critics. It did divide opinion. How did you see it at the time? So I came out of NASCAR in 2008 and 2009, the economy tanked. So I was at a company where partners who were in business for 30 years decided to divest from the sport. I had to lay off 172 people. Uh, and, I, and, and going to market was incredibly difficult. It was not something that anyone anticipated or prepared for. Uh, but I realized that the one thing that most people who rely on commercial partners, commercial partnership is 62% of USA Track and Field's revenue. Uh, you do want to be able to have long-term partners and you want to take care of them. Uh, and so for me, while I could not anticipate you know, COVID hitting, I knew that at some point in time we would have an economic up and downturn. And the fact of the matter was we needed the financial stability because our organization was losing sponsors. Our budget was a third of what it was. And we needed to demonstrate to the market that we had a premium brand that believed in us. We had to have the financial stability so we could be innovative. And at the same time, we needed to increase our investment in programming and our high performance. And so for me, what I did understand as the founder of Nike is a track and field athlete. It is woven into the fabric and the DNA of that company. It is a core business vertical of Nike. And there isn't, in my opinion, and I will say this to this day, another company that truly understood the real, not just commercial, but the cultural and the intrinsic value of track and field than all of the executives who led that company. So I felt like there would be a premium investment in the sport, knowing that not only was it the number one track and field athletics team in the world, but also the cultural impact that it had. So I did do the analysis, and I think it's proven to be one of those things that has kept us financially stable and the catalyst to attract 19 new partners uh, to USA Track and Field's commercial portfolio over the I, last- I was going to say it must have been, it must have had a magnetic effect once, you got, once you got them across the table. Yeah, absolutely. One of the first- things that wound up happening was during the Olympic trials of 2012, uh, BMW reached out to us to do a co-activation because they saw themselves as a premium brand. And we were able to do the hammer throw on the Nike campus with BMW support and be innovative and, you know, have that experience for our athletes like, you know, the gallery at the U.S. Open. And so for me, yes, it was magnetic. 
uh, it was a statement to the industry and it piqued the curiosity of a lot of commercial partners out there to be involved with our organization. You know where I'm going to take this next because, you know, there is a conundrum here, isn't there? Uh, and this is the one that I've been grappling with for a number of years as a, you know, somebody that's, that's trained in the U.S., has lived in the U.S., competed uh, in the U.S. And it's, it's the conundrum. You and I discussed it before, but I think it's, it's worth rehearsing again because we've, you've got, you're the number one sport in terms of participation in high schools. I mean, you've only got to be out on, in any neighborhood, uh, between, you know, in the cross country season to know that I think there are about two, two and a half million kids that are competing uh, regularly in cross country. Uh, you've got very high participation rates. You've got 50 million runners identifying themselves as runners in the course of a year. Uh, and you're the powerhouse in, of, of world track and field. You know, you don't always win the sprint titles, but hey, you know, by and large, you go home with the, the, the biggest haul of, of medals. And while some of those athletes are absolute, you know, you, they couldn't walk down the Bahnhofstrasse in, in Zurich or, you know, Grand Place in, in Belgium without, and Brussels without being, you know, mobbed and, and selfies flying all over the place, there's, there's still a challenge in the U.S. to get those God-given talents onto, onto the radar screen. What you know, we've got LA twenty eight coming up. We've had a fabulous world championships in, in Eugene. What what are the next steps here? Because clearly there's a there is an important landing landing uh, strip here uh, in the lead up to an Olympic Games on home soil. Yes. Yeah, so, so you've said a lot, which I completely agree with you. So first of all, the U.S. has such a crowded marketplace for entertainment. Period. Right. So to to distinguish yourself from all the other things that people can spend their time consuming is a challenge. The second challenge that we faced is that most people view our sport on a four-year cycle with the Olympic Games. So for me, and then the third thing that you uh, referenced that really I've focused on a lot over the last 12 months is how do we connect our brand and our sport to those who identify themselves as runners who may not connect with our organization in the sport. So for me, there are a few things that we're doing. Uh, globally, we've done a nice job as a sport, but we're focusing on a domestic sustainable circuit, which is the organizing principle around which athletes from around the world can compete consistently and regularly in the US. It can be on television and through all distribution platforms with regularity, with predictability, it is a long-term investment in markets where different cities can invest in an infrastructure from a facility standpoint to support it. And the model has fan engagement. It has youth integration, master's exhibitions, and coaches' clinics. So this May in Los Angeles on the 27th, we are experimenting and we're testing the pilot with our LA Grand Prix. The success of that meet will be replicated in four or five markets. Uh, I have been successful in upselling some of our existing partners and getting the interest of other partners to be anchor sponsors. And we and back will to your musical roots as well. I understand. And there's a music festival. Absolutely, there <laughs> there are so many things integrated in it. 
to make that experience one that is really memorable and actually reflects uh, the community engagement and cultural impact that the sport has. And as you've said, um, it's an extremely accessible sport. And I, I'm hard-pressed to go anywhere where I, I always find someone that has a track and field story, whether they ran in track and field, a family member, a, you know, a child. And so for me, it just really, it really, it really shows us the opportunity that we have. Now, the last thing I'll say is it's interesting because the world championships in my 11 years on this job has really piqued the interest of people who have never asked me about the sport and having the Olympics in LA 2028 gives us a few years to really ramp it up, you know, and continue to work collaboratively with world athletics, you know, and everyone else to reposition a sport here. So it is about telling the stories. It's about content creation. And frankly, outside of competition, we're getting very aggressive in lifestyle content that puts our athletes front and center in front of uh, an audience. Because as you mentioned earlier in the interview, many of them have such fascinating journeys and stories to tell. So we're excited about that as well. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to be there in LA uh, at this event. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you can then include a little bit of jazz in there, Max, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not too tightly prescriptive. I, I'm fascinated also in the content creation elements in that, because as you know, we're all working at this moment on a, uh, on a documentary series that are going to, I hope, plot the path of some of the athletes in the lead up to, uh, uh, Budapest, our world championships, uh, this year, of course, we've got two back to back because of the, uh, delay of the Olympic games. So look, all this is, is, is hugely important, but look, I think it's fair to say it's not been entirely all plain sailing because along with the Herculean. Uh, achievements around the commercial programs that has attracted some, uh, you know, some 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 flack. I know there was 2016. You were the there was a a, a hit piece in the Washington Post. You've had some criticism uh, about remuneration packages, certainly with the athletes. How do you respond to that? Yeah. Well, first first and foremost, uh, I can tell you that uh, professional scrutiny, criticism, constructive feedback is just a part of what we do. Uh, for me, probably the most disappointing and frustrating part of the criticism has been the factual inaccuracies that have been published in the personal nature of the attacks. Uh, certainly my children and my family read this kind of stuff. Uh, and so for me, you know, that has been probably the most difficult part with trying to not take it personal. Uh, the reality of the situation is that, as I as I said earlier, uh, I, I focus on the why. why. Why do I get up every day? If there isn't a why uh, that makes sense, uh, then why do it? You know, and so to be able to see my work have an impact, to know factually what we've done, to invest and improve the organization and the lives of the athletes, uh, it kind of keeps me focused. Uh, you know, what I do understand is with this responsibility and to change a culture and be a disruptor, if you will, uh, ruffles the feathers of some people. Uh, there are a number of other things that are layered into that that are you know challenging at times. But having the support of a good professional team, having literally, in my opinion, the best chief operating officer in sport in the world to support me, it kind of helps. It kind of helps you know, you push through it. So 
at the end of the day, you know, I'd like to focus on the metrics, the quality of my work, the and the outcomes. We've had the most financial success in the history of the organization. We've had the most athletic success in the history of the organization. Uh, and we've continued to diversify and grow uh, this organization. And we've been able, if you take an athlete like Shante Lowe, who uh, has had, you know, health challenges in our insurance and programs, has, you know, we've been able to support her. It's just one example that goes beyond what you might read. So I'll say that to say that, no, it has not been smooth sailing. Uh, and at the end of the day, to keep my own sanity and to continue to push forward in a positive way, I focus on a lot of the qualitative and quantitative metrics uh, that are objective in nature uh, to gauge whether or not I'm making a difference. And, you know, and then I just have to accept the fact that some of it comes with the territory. Uh, I'm afraid that is the case, Max. Let, let, let me pick up on a word you've used uh, and you used fairly liberally just over the last couple of moments, and that was success. Uh, I've touched upon LA 28. We've got an Olympic Games barely a year or so away. Um in the in an ideal world, what does success look like to you off the back of those two games? And by the time we've got through LA twenty eight, which is an is an you know is a huge moment, not just for your domestic sport, but for us globally, because you know expanding that footprint in the USA, you couldn't have a better platform than than a games in you know the entertainment city of the world. Yeah, success for me. Um... I'm big on metrics. And so, you know, it's great to talk philosophically about the improved relationships in the yeah. country and health. But for me, I think, you know, our big, big, big goal with World Athletics to have our sport positioned in the top five from an objectively measured standpoint is important. Uh, when I look at my own organization, increasing our membership and fan engagement uh, those are numbers that we can uh, measure. Uh, looking at participation in the country, but you know what I do uh, hope that we can do is again have a commercially sustainable circuit and have a number of vehicles to tell the stories of our athletes and then be able to build the brands of our athletes. And so you know on the participation side, the fan engagement side, the membership side for me, you know, tripling our membership has been a goal of mine uh, with USA Track and Field, increasing our fan engagement numbers uh, twofold uh, it, it is success. And really, like I said, being into the fifth or sixth year of a sustainable commercial circuit where athletes from around the world can enjoy competing on U.S. soil and earning money from it, uh, it contributes to success for me. So, Max, here I declare an interest because, of course, uh, we have an athlete management division at, at CSM, the organization that I chair. And it would be remiss of me not to reflect on your time as a sports agent. Because there are lots of people out there listening to this podcast who'd be as equally fascinated in that as anything else we've talked about. Uh, and particularly during a period where you represented NFL stalwart Reggie White and the high, uh, the big hitting MLB great Tony Gwynn. What are some of the characteristics of the best sports agents that you have come across? And have these traits changed between when you were active and what you're doing today? 
Yes. Yeah, so, so Reggie and Tony gave me my start in the business and I learned a lot about representation with how they approach a game. They were first to get up. They worked the hardest. They respected the game. They wanted to have longevity. Uh, they wanted to improve it. They were mentors. And so for me, what I find, uh, first of all, being a sports agent is incredibly difficult. Uh, much like being the CEO of USA Track and Field, there are a lot of different well, stakeholders. Surely not that difficult, Mike. No. Yeah. There are a lot of different <laughs> stakeholders in an athlete's life. And so for me, first and foremost, protecting uh, the athlete's ability to perform and maximizing their earnings is critically important. Uh, being there to counsel and lead them so there are pl- so they, they do both financial planning and have an eye toward professional development beyond sport is really important. And, you know, having the support and, 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 and a representative that helps them build their brand, not just for commercial endorsements, but for networking and professional opportunities be, beyond the sport is important. But most importantly, you got to have a skill and you got to be able to add value to your client's life uh, on and off the field. And so for me, you have a lot of contracts that are much more valuable these days than they were before. And so I think there is a huge importance of having a professional team that can help the athlete preserve the money that they have, uh, you know, invest in things where they make a difference and set them up for life after sport. And as you know, uh, as an athlete yourself, having a conversation with an active athlete about life after sports is not a really, really popular or easy thing to do. But I think that those agencies that really think short and long term uh, are the ones that win and they continue to have their clients in their in, in, in their portfolio for many, many years. I could go on chatting brows. You don't have the time uh, because you've already explained exactly what you're doing. Um, but, but if I may, just a broad question to end on. You are one of the world's sport leading sports administrators. I'm sure, like all of us, you spend a lot of time trying to figure out and anticipating opportunities and challenges. So I know you'll have a few ideas here to share. And I'm fascinated in what you think are the biggest challenges, maybe some of the biggest opportunities that are out there currently, threats as well. We have to accept that. This is a complicated landscape, politically, socially, culturally at the moment. Um, Faced by rights holders, brands and athletes. Uh, And if you sort of can pose those for a few moments, I'm fascinated in where you think, you know, that the marketplace is going to be in two I, don't, I hate talking long-term. I, I, I always prefer actually to focus on shorter-term stuff because strategic plans are great, but you know you end up changing course so often through force majeure. I'm, I'm fascinated in where you see the market in the next two or three years. Yeah. Short-term, I think there are tremendous opportunities, even within our sport, for commercial partnerships on a what I would consider a micro, local level. Uh, with yeah. all the distribution channels, with social media, with the consumption, you know, with the way people are looking at brands, you know, right now, I, I my oldest son played football at Notre Dame. He came up through the junior football system. My daughter plays volleyball at Howard. She came up through, you know, youth volleyball. And to see the passionate fan base and the numbers of people 
who are engaged in the sport. I think they're tremendous opportunities, not just nationally, but locally and on a grassroots level for meaningful partnerships commercially and programming. Uh, I think the threat, but is also an opportunity, is if we globally can speak with one voice and we can globally work together, use the power of the athlete's voice and their brand, and we can harness that energy and focus and approach our partners and our fans in a way uh, that invites them into the experience and lets them know uh, that we're going to be great partners and add value. Uh, that is an opportunity, but it is also a threat, you know, with social media, with the public criticism of our sport, of our brands and those kind of things. It, 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 in my opinion, it would cause someone who otherwise might invest in our organization to pause and ask whether they want their brand associated with ours. So uh, that, and then, and then, and then the last thing is that I think that we have to be able to demonstrate to our young people that having a career, whether as an athlete or an administrator in our sport, is a viable opportunity to be able to take care of your family, you know, uh, exist and match your passion uh, with your skill. So I think we got to do a, a much better job at building the financial infrastructure globally and then really promoting the tremendous opportunities to uh, work and be engaged in our sport. Max, thanks very, very much for some really fascinating insights. I think there's a tutorial here or content in a tutorial that goes way, way beyond just simply sport itself. So thank you for spending the time and sharing those thoughts with us. And I look forward to catching up with you very, very soon. Max, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you and great seeing you. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times brought to you by CSM 